Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather, uh, to gather uh, here and celebrate who you are and your faithfulness. We thank you that you're the God of ages past, that your faithfulness isn't new, uh, that your faithfulness is ever-present, and we find it recorded in your word. We pray that it will give us confidence as we deal with the demands of life uh, and the challenges that we see right in front of us. But Father, we thank you that your faithfulness, that the boundaries of your plan and your call in our lives are bigger than we can imagine. And Father, we fall before you this morning uh, knowing that we deserve much less than you've granted us. And we pray that you open our hearts and minds to that again this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. One of the things that lightning does uh, to electronics is it makes some of them not work. I'm, I'm not used to being confined to one particular space, so, so bear with me as I deal with kind of staying in this box. If I walk outside of it and you can't hear me, you can just shush me back over uh, and make sure that I stay here. But, but I think it's helpful that we, we see the story of Scripture and the faithfulness of God in story. I, I'm thankful to be here today to give Robert some relief, but even to see a baptism this morning that encompasses a family that fits outside of our boundaries so there's people from New Jersey, people from Florida, there's people from Chattanooga, and if you haven't figured this out already, I'm from Chicago, and before that came from Wisconsin, so my accent may give that away. The reality is, though, that we have a tendency to live our lives thinking about the things that are right in our kind of myopic vision, right in front of us. How, how do I make sure that I can put food on the table tomorrow? What about my children and their next grade level? What about my family and my circumstances? What about my job? What about that car that's broken down? What about college in the future? We have a tendency to absorb and focus all of our time on the things that are directly in front of us. But we serve a God that has a much bigger picture of his creation than we do. And we see that in a story in 1 Kings 17. So I'd like to start by giving some context. Three chapters before, approximately three chapters before 1 Kings 17, we find the end of the reign of King Solomon, the wise one. And we see a king who had asked God for wisdom and God had given him much, much more. But he had made a mistake along the way. For way back in Deuteronomy, way back when the Israelites stood at the base of Mount Sinai, he said several things to them, but one of the warnings that he gave them was, you're going to want an earthly king. And I'll provide you an earthly king, but th- this king must do this. And this is from Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. Only he must not acquire too many horses for himself, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest he turn his heart away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. Now, if you know much about Solomon, he didn't really, in all of his wisdom, heed that warning. And as a result of all that came with that, the fact that he set his heart on something that wasn't God above, it ultimately led to the separation of the nation of Israel. So in the three chapters that follow his life, we see the northern kingdom of Israel fall into a greater and greater state of disrepair, of of people falling away from God. And it wasn't that they forgot God entirely. It wasn't that they didn't worship the God, their deliverer, the one that had freed them from slavery. They remembered those stories. They understood that their God was a God of deliverance, that he was a God of the wilderness, That he had provided for them in the wilderness with manna and with food that they never understood could be possible. That he had essentially gone before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and had won many battles for them. 
But because they had this singular vision, they lost sight of what that meant for them in that time because now they weren't wanderers in a wilderness. They were farmers. They lived a life that was different. And what was important to them was rain and fertility, right? If I have a farm and I don't have modern mechanics, what do I need to make sure that that farm produces what it's intended to produce? I need water to grow those crops, to be able to have sustenance, to live and to eat and to function and to flourish. And I need children. I need the work to be done. I need many hands to do the hard labor. So this God of deliverance, they started to ask, well, wait a minute. We don't need that kind of deliverance anymore. We need a different God. We need a God who can provide more. So they did something that was a pattern of all of our lives. They took worshiping God and said, that's not enough. I need something else. And that something else in Canaanite culture was Baal. Baal was the god of rain and the god of fertility. So they didn't set aside their worship of God. They just put next to their worship of God a worship of a god who could provide them the things that they felt were needed to have flourishing and sustenance and and, and to have comfort in life. And there's an interesting story in culture about Baal. Baal uh, was, as I said, the god of, of water, of rain, and of fertility. He, his, kind of, his, his nemesis was this god Mot, M-O-T. And he was the god of fire, and he was the god of death. Following the passage that we're going to read this morning, we see this great image of Elijah standing on the mountaintop and defeating the god of Baal, the prophets of Baal, because he didn't bring water onto the altar. But you had this tension going where people were serving a God that was only intended to serve them. They worshipped a God because they wanted something from that God. It wasn't worship for the purpose of that God's glory. It was worship of Baal because he was going to give them something. He was going to protect them from the God of death and the God of drought. So the context that we have this morning in 1 Kings 17 is Elijah's been called out of the wilderness to go to Ahab a king that had definitely turned his heart away from God and say, there's going to be drought on this land for this foreseeable future unless you turn back to God. So Elijah goes out in all of his prophetic boldness and he stands before Ahab and and essentially as he proclaimed this, now he risked his life. And for safety, God had sent him into the wilderness. Imagine that. I've just been called to be a prophet I'm going to go turn around the heart of Ahab. I'm a man. I think I'm going to fix things. And I stand before Ahab and I proclaim the word of the Lord. And he doesn't listen. And what does God do? He doesn't give me more strength. He doesn't give me more time. He puts me back in the wilderness. And he says, I'm going to sit you by a brook. And I'm going to send ravens to send you food. Just enough. You'll have just enough water and just enough food. And I can imagine if I was Elijah and I was thinking in my own little world and I was thinking, you called me to be a prophet, you've given me all this, and this is what I get in reward, a small brook in the middle of a wilderness? No one would go there for fun. This isn't the type of place that you'd go on a vacation. And after the brook dried up, God said to Elijah, now it's time to go back and to be the prophet that I called you to be, only he doesn't send him back to Ahab He sends him to Zarephath where he meets a widow. And big, strong prophet Elijah has to go to a widow who has nothing. Now remember, in this culture, she had no husband and she had one son. From an economic standpoint, she was disadvantaged. 
So God sent the prophet Elijah to a disadvantaged person who had nothing and said, I need water and I need cake. And she went to get him water, which was like gold, because they were in the middle of a drought. And she said, I'm sorry, but I can't give you a cake because I have no flour or I have only enough for me and my son. And Elijah says, let's have faith. And she makes him the cake and the story I think many of us know. Her flour and her oil never run out. So that's where we're at. We see God performing miracles in the life of a widow in Zarephath. This is not an Israelite city. God's boundaries are expanded. Instead of just going to his people in Israel, Elijah the prophet is called to go into a Canaanite city and bring the word of the Lord. And in verse 17, if you have your Bibles open, if we could turn there, we pick up the story. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause me the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, you have brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So what's happening here? This woman has just given this prophet Elijah food to sustain him in his journey. They see God perform a miracle and and allow the flower to never disappear, to just have enough. And a little while later, Elijah returns and this widow's son, this wonderful widow who had nothing yet offered Elijah A house and food and place to be renewed. Now she had lost her son. And what does she say to Elijah? Look at verse 18. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. What is she saying? Now, she's angry with Elijah. So again, let's go back to Elijah's circumstances. God, you called me to be a prophet. You sent me to King Ahab. I was going to have all kinds of great things you were going to allow me to do. And then you sent me to a wilderness with a brook and a raven. And now you send me to a woman. And I go there and you take her son from her. And now she's blaming me. How can this be right? Because the woman is angry with Elijah. But what is she angry with him for? She's saying, you identified my sin, and you called out the truth in my life, and because now, because you've identified sin in my life, my son has died because of my sin. 
So the question that we have to answer is, what's God trying to teach us even in this? Is he teaching us that essentially that our individual sin causes calamity? Is what this passage is saying is that the woman's son has died because she's done something to forsake God? Is that what this passage is saying? I don't know the full answer to this question, but we do know a couple of things from the passage. Elijah never addresses this woman's question. She never says, no, it's not your sin that causes the death of your son. He never answers. That doesn't mean he's saying it was. But if we think, what's, what is it that's brought death into this world? What is it that's brought imperfection into God's perfection? It's our sin. It's the sin of our representative Adam and Eve, who while they were in the garden, then they had everything. They had the, the fullness of God's kingdom in front of them, said, I don't want to serve that God, I want to serve me. I don't want to serve the creator. I want to serve the creature. I want to know in my own soul what only God should know. This isn't an Israelite or Adam-only problem. This is the problem that we all endure. This is the problem that I endure. This is the struggle I have when someone criticizes me for the way that I do my job or the way that I raise my children or the way that I love my wife or the way that I engage in conflict. This is the problem that leads me to be self-centered. To say, life is about me. And if I'm attacked or if, or if someone comes and challenges me and I'm serving myself, then I stand back and become defensive. I stand back and I demand more. I stand back and live a life looking in very narrow boundaries. But God says there's something much bigger here. There's a story much bigger to be told. That while sin brought death into the world, that while we struggle on this earth, that there's a bigger kingdom that God has in mind. And that kingdom has already come. So by faith, Elijah takes the child... And stands over him three times and God breathes life back into the child. Now let's go back to Elijah. What would have been the example from scripture that would have allowed Elijah to believe that God would heal this child and bring the child back to life? So if you think back in your mind, has this type of resurrection occurred in scripture before this moment in time? It hasn't. So the faith of Elijah to stand over this child was substantive. In the middle of his kind of exile from the task that he believed he should have, we see Elijah trusting that God is a powerful God and can bring life back into this child. There was no evidence that this could be seen before. We know this is significant because if you scroll forward in Scripture to Hebrews chapter 11, that wonderful by faith passage. In Hebrews chapter 11, it reminds us of this story. It says, by faith, a woman's child was brought back to life. In the middle of all those wonderful testimonies of faith that we find in Hebrews chapter 11, this story is remembered because of the faith that God gave to Elijah to believe that this child could come back to life. It's a wonderful story. But if we stop there and we think, hey, I just need to be more like Elijah, 
If we walk out of this room this morning and think that this story is telling us about the boundaries, if we just live our lives in more faith, if we just believe more, if we just trust more, then everything will be great. Then we miss the bigger picture of the story. Because what we see is a God here who said, to redeem a people unto myself that are going to come from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. I'm going to continue to tell my story of redemption. I'm going to continue to tell my story of freedom from slavery. I'm going to continue to remind an unfaithful people time and time again that I am the God of the universe. That I'm the God to be glorified. And I'm going to do that by redeeming a rebellious people. I'm going to do that by freeing a people who have no faith and give them faith. Because what does this story give us a picture of? Is it true that sin brought death and decay and struggle and pain into the world? Is this true? Yes, we can't ignore this. Is it true that God has a solution that's already been accomplished to restore what he intended and to make it all right, to bring resurrection to what was dead, not just to this child, but to all of us who outside of the love of God and Jesus Christ would experience the same type of sense and an eternal reality that this mother felt in the loss of her son. Because what we see here is not just a story of a prophet who is saying, stop worshiping Baal. What we see here is a story of a prophet who understood by faith that the giver of life, that the redeemer of all things was the God of Israel. And the giver of life and the God of all things didn't care just about the people of Israel. He cared about his glory being manifest to the nations. Way back in Deuteronomy, at the same time that God told Solomon, or God told the Israelites, not to have kings who cared too much about horses and wives and money, he also said this, I'm going to organize you, I'm going to structure you, I'm going to give you civil authorities, I'm going to tell you how to solve disputes over land, I'm going to tell you what food you should eat and what food you shouldn't eat. And why did he do this? He did it. So that when the nations looked in and they saw what God had done to the people of Israel, that they would say, who is there such a God as this that cares about the type of food that we eat? Who is there such a God as this that cares about things like marriage and children and baptism and covenant promises? Who is there such a God as this that cares about lightning strikes and microphones and all of those things? It's the God of Israel who deserves our glory. Because what we see in this story is a telling of resurrection to come. Because while Elijah didn't answer the question, have you come to call out my sin to bring me death? His actions said, no, I come to call out your sin to bring you life. Do you see the answer to the woman's questions in Elijah's actions? It wasn't death that he called out as a result of sin. It was resurrection and redemption. Because he was telling a story that was even greater to come. Do you all believe that the story of resurrection of Jesus Christ is a bigger story than the resurrection of a child? 
Do you understand that God's boundaries were much bigger than that widow at that moment in that time? That God's boundaries were the restoration of a people and a creation. God's boundaries included at that moment when Jesus died and resurrected, God's boundaries included your missions team that's going to Acapulco. God's boundaries included a baptism that brings in people from Florida and New Jersey. God's boundaries include the things of your life, but they also include the things of lives far beyond. God's boundaries include how he's going to glorify himself in the midst of a people who don't want to bring glory to him by their nature. They want to bring glory to themselves. So what we see in the story of Elijah and the woman is a telling of the story that was to come in Jesus Christ. Because while death and decay and struggle was brought into the world, it wasn't that son that had to die on that day to fix the problem that was in front of the woman and Elijah. Whose son had to die on a future day to resolve the problem of sin and struggle in our lives? It was God's own son. So while God loved the woman enough to raise her son from the dead, he loved her even more when he gave his own son to suffer his rejection and death, to pay the penalty and heal the world. Do you believe this morning that the death of Jesus and his resurrection is more important and more powerful and bigger boundary than the resurrection of this child? Because it's only through that lens that we can wrestle with what happens when God chooses not to resurrect a child. It's only through that lens that we can understand when tragedy and war and suffering and financial ruin and broken relationships come into the world. Why doesn't God choose to give me the same healing that he gave this woman? Have any of you ever asked that question before? What we know from Scripture is it's because God's boundaries are bigger. Because when God told Solomon way, way long ago, I told you not to love too many horses, I told you not to love too many wives, and I told you not to love money, and you did it anyway. What did horses bring in the Old Testament And in biblical times, they brought power. I told you not to love too much power. I told you not to love inappropriate sexual things. And I told you not to love too much money. I told you not to worship them like the people of Israel were worshiping Baal. I told you they wouldn't bring the things that you wanted them to bring. Chad, I told you that those things would not bring you flourishing. But you believe it anyway. So what did I do? He provided his son, who rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on a borrowed colt. He had to borrow it because he was penniless. And he only had one wife. The church. So I'm giving you a son who did all things right and deserves all of the honor and glory given to a king. And I made him guilty. 
and I made him die. And when my son stood on the cross and said, my God, my father, why have you forsaken me? I turned my back on my only son to give you life with a much bigger boundary than the life of this child. I gave you faith to believe that these things are true. I gave you a community to live and grow and struggle and flourish. I gave you things like marriage and baptism to remind you of my faithfulness, to tell you a story that you'll forget because you choose to serve yourself instead of me. I gave you righteousness through the works of another. Do you understand in the life that you've been given that your God, the same God of Israel, the same powerful God who desires to see himself be glorified above all things is glorified because his son completed a work of redemption so that you can be called his child. So that you're invited to slide your knees up under his table as a child and be called his adopted heirs, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. Not because you did it right, but because he did. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Our hope is in the fact that the completed work of Christ allows God sees you today in the perfection of the work of his son. That your identity is already secured. That you don't have to chase after all of the things of the world to find flourishing and hope and peace. That those things have already been granted. Do you see that story in this story? Do you see the story of Elijah in your own life? Do you see his claim to say, focus on the bigger boundaries of God's kingdom that are already here? Release yourself from the slavery of things that you think are going to provide you fulfillment and trust in the beauty of a resurrected Savior who came to bring you life and to bring it abundantly. And trust that those boundaries are not just for this church here this morning. They're for a world that's way bigger than what we see here this morning, and they need to hear that same good news. So trust that in giving you this wonderful blessing and this wonderful gift as an act of worship, let's commit to telling the same story of flourishing and huge boundaries to a world that needs to hear that God of ages past brings resurrection and life through a son who is perfect and sacrificed on everything so that you could live in a way that is much, much bigger than the life of the child and the story of Elijah. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate a much bigger story than we confess, than we on most days understand. Father, we stand before you understanding that our brokenness keeps us from seeing the size of your goodness and greatness. We stand before you a people that reject and run from you, even though as we look around, we see you pursuing us time and time and time again. 
We stand before you this morning understanding that we understand intellectually that baptism means that you've given a promise that you hold on to, that your covenant promises are true and faithful, but we stand before you understanding that in our hearts we run from that promise time and time again. But Father, you stand before us as a redeeming God who knowing all this gave up your son And we thank you for that extraordinary sacrifice. And we thank you for the fact that that story is bigger than even the things that we see. And we thank you that we can see your faithfulness demonstrated time and time again. Father, continue to give us this hope. Use whatever means necessary to remind us of your unfailing love. And Father, we thank you that in Christ's completed work, in his statement that it is finished, that we stand before you today as saints, That while we can see our sin, we also see ourselves in light of the wonderful grace and glory that you've given us in your Son. And we rejoice in that ever new as we worship you this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen.